Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have two excellent co-presenters today, Emily A. Johnson and Courtney Tito, members at McDonald Hopkins LLC. McDonald Hopkins is a business advisory and advocacy law firm with offices in six locations, Chicago, Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Miami, and West Palm Beach. Emily Johnson in the Chicago office focuses her practice on matters primarily for clients in the healthcare industry. She provides regulatory and compliance assistance on both the federal and state level. She has assisted clinical laboratories, hospitals, long-term acute care hospitals, community associations, physician specialty groups, telehealth providers, surgery centers, healthcare associations, pharmacies, and other healthcare providers on regulatory, licensing, compliance, reimbursement, contractual, and corporate matters. She has provided support to entities during licensure and accreditation surveys and assisted in navigating state professional licensure laws, CLIA standards and state and federal laboratory laws and regulations, government and private payer reimbursement, state and federal fraud and abuse rules, state telehealth laws, and state and federal pharmacy regulation. She also has advised clients on direct-to-consumer testing issues and applicable state requirements. She also has experience with provider-based compliance issues and the 340B federal drug pricing program, including implementation, program compliance, audit preparation, and preparing for audits conducted by the Office of Pharmacy Affairs. In addition, she has significant experience with HIPAA compliance, including drafting HIPAA policies and procedures, breach re response and notification, drafting response to investigations and conducted by the Office for Civil Rights, and advising clients for proactive HIPAA compliance and breach prevention. Prior to joining McDonald Hopkins, Emily served as healthcare attorney senior consultant at a national legal-based healthcare management consulting firm and outside counsel to the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Emily earned a JD from the John Marshall Law School in 2010. She received a BA Dean's List from Illinois Wesleyan University in 2005. Courtney Tito, located in the West Palm Beach office, counsels and represents clients in the health law industry, including federal and private payer audits and disputes, reimbursement, contract, corporate enrollment revocations, payment suspensions, internal investigations, compliance and regulatory, and in responding to federal subpoenas and civil investigative demands. She advises clients in both federal and state matters. 
Courtney has counseled clients on regulatory licensing, compliance, reimbursement, corporate CLIA standards, state and federal fraud and abuse rules and regulations in telehealth matters. And Courtney has also advised clients regarding direct-to-consumer issues. Prior to joining the law firm, Courtney served as a staff attorney to the Public International Law and Policy Group from 2006 to 2007 in Baghdad, Iraq. She worked with legislators and the federal Supreme Court advising senior ranking officials on drafting, implementing legislation and amending current legislation and amending the constitution. Courtney received an MA from American University School of International Service in 2004. She earned her JD cum laude from American University Washington College of Law in 2003 and a BA from James Madison in 1997. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM will come, certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with the button on the side panel or the upper panel of your screen. So Courtney and Emily, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine, for that introduction. This is Emily Johnson. Um, I will be speaking for the, the first half of our presentation today, and then Courtney will take over the second half. And at the end of our presentation, we will respond to any questions anybody in the audience might have. So today's presentation is going to discuss the coronavirus that we are facing the national pandemic for currently. Um, specifically, we're going to be talking about testing, for the virus reimbursement issues and um, the provider relief funds program. Uh, let me just advance. There we go. Um, okay, so our contact information is on the screen. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to either Courtney or myself after this presentation. We'd be happy to answer any of the questions you might have. So the agenda for today. Um, I'm going to focus on the testing aspect of today's presentation. So uh, we're, we're going to get into a discussion of PCR testing, what that means, and how that differs from serology testing. Um, you know, we're going to focus on the different types of testing, offering COVID testing itself, um, operational and business considerations associated with testing, and so forth. We will also get into a discussion on employment issues associated with return to work testing and what that means. So we will talk about employer-directed testing for return to work purposes, and then how that might differ for healthcare employees specifically and what that means for testing both the healthcare um, employee as well as the patient population. The second half of the presentation Courtney will get into the reimbursement rules and issues surrounding billing for COVID testing um, and who is authorized to bill for that testing. She will also discuss the Provider Relief Fund, which was a program that was issued under the CARES Act. 
um, and she'll talk about the terms and conditions for that program as well as enforcement of the program. So with that being said, I will move on to my portion of the presentation. So when we talk about COVID testing, there isn't just one test out there. There's actually three main types of tests and we'll get into all three of them uh, as we go here. But the most popular of these tests is the molecular or the, the PCR test. This is a diagnostic test um, that the vast majority of tests for the COVID virus are actually molecular tests. These types of tests um, are used to detect RNA in clinical samples. And the goal is to identify people who are currently infected with COVID. It will not tell you if somebody had previously had COVID and is no longer infected. The test itself, um, I haven't had it, but I hear it's pretty invasive. It is performed by inserting a six inch swab into the back of a nasal passage through one of the nostrils and then rotating the swab several times for 15 seconds. Um, it, the, the, the diagnosis of COVID is confirmed by looking at the genetic material that is found on the swab. And the test itself identifies two specific COVID genes. If the test only identifies one gene, the test is deemed inconclusive. So in order to actually have a, a conclusive COVID diagnosis, you actually have to have um, found both of the specific COVID genes on, on the swab that was tested. Like I said, it cannot tell whether someone has COVID and has since recovered, so it's not to be used for that purpose, it's just for ongoing current infections. The next type of test is the antigen test. This is also a diagnostic test, though its accuracy is um, somewhat suspect, so it's not really one that is relied upon. It's used for rapid detection of the COVID virus, so it's used in hospital settings or healthcare clinics um, where there's an immediate need to see if somebody who's symptomatic is carrying or is infected with the virus. Um, it's typically confirmed with the PCR testing if somebody tests positive or even negative for the antigen test, there's usually a confirmation test done through the, the PCR molecular test. The test itself provides results in minutes. So, um, you know, the utility of immediate results is definitely beneficial to the practice of medicine. Um, in the test, the, the, the way the test is performed is similar to the PCR test in that it is done via a nasal cavity swab um, that quickly detects fragments of proteins found on or within the virus. So it's different than the molecular and that the molecular test for genes. This one's actually testing proteins that are found on the virus. Um, it does not test all active infections or does not detect all active infections. So the PCR test is much more accurate. Um, and this one, the, the antigen test is not as sensitive. So it's a very specific test for the virus itself but because it doesn't test um, as widely as the PCR test and is not as sensitive as the PCR test, um, the results can have some utility questions as far as what do we do with the results in a, in a healthcare setting. Um, so basically what this means is a positive result on the antigen test is very highly accurate that that person in fact is currently infected with COVID. But because this test is less sensitive than the PCR test, 
there is a much higher chance for false negatives. So if you test negative using the antigen test, this doesn't mean that you don't have COVID, right? And so the recommendation is that healthcare providers then use those negative results and have them confirmed by performing a PCR test prior to making any type of treatment decisions. And then the, the last form of the test is the serology test, or um, you may know this as the, the antibody test. So unlike the PCR and the antigen test, serology tests are actually not used to diagnose the current infection. Uh, these actually look for antibodies to the virus, virus uh, which can help identify people who have had the virus and have adapted uh, or developed an adaptive immune response to the virus, um, either as part of an active infection or from a prior infection. Antibodies are present in anyone who has recovered from COVID. To do this test, it's usually a blood sample from a finger prick. Um, the problem with the serology test is that it's not highly accurate and therefore the utility of the results is unknown. Um, as scientists are still exploring reinfection and what does that mean, right? If you test positive for um, the antibodies, meaning at some point you were a um, COVID, you, you had the COVID infection, what does that mean as far as your likelihood of getting reinfected? There have been claims of reinfection um, coming out of some of the other countries, and I know there's studies going on in the U.S. right now but we just don't know with certainty what that reinfection rate means. So what that means is somebody has the serology test and they test positive saying that they have the antibodies, right? It might give somebody who doesn't understand and appreciate the inaccuracies associated with the serology test, some sort of false um, impression that they are now immune to coronavirus. And that's, that has not been proven to be true. Um, one great thing about the serology test is they can actually be used to determine herd Im immunity in a certain population. So it can be used to determine the proportion of a population that was previously infected with COVID, and it can provide information about populations that might be immune and potentially protected for purposes of lifting um, some of the stay-at-home or um, safeguarding measures that are in place right now to minimize the spread of the, the virus itself. Um, and like I said, it can also be used to determine which communities have higher rates of herd immunity. So that is, you know, the types of testing. And there isn't just one test in each of these buckets. Um, many labs have applied for and gotten their own version of the test, which is, you know, um, a little bit different sometimes when these novel viruses come out. There's one test that's run and approved through the CDC. This this one, because of the mass pandemic that we're facing, um, the labs have created and used their own tests for um, uh, creating increased access to testing. Okay, so moving on to arranging for and offering COVID testing. So that Food and Drug Administration or the FDA has what is known as emergency use authorization, which um, allows the FDA to help uh, strengthen the nation's public health protections against biological threats such as viruses by facilitating the availability and use of medical countermeasures or MCMs 
needed during public health emergencies. So what does that mean? It basically accelerates the development of diagnostic tests for certain um, pandemics in order to minimize the threats of the public health. With respect to COVID specifically, this uh, EUA created an accelerated route for diagnostic tests specifically for COVID by labs certified under CLIA. So CLIA are the regulations for those um, that don't know, although I'm sure most people on the call um, know, or at least have a general working understanding of what CLIA is, but that's sort of the framework for laboratories and the regulatory guidelines that they must follow. So this EUA authority is available for CLIA certified labs um, that meet the CLIA requirements to perform high complexity testing. And those labs can seek EUA authority from the FDA to basically develop and perform new diagnostic tests. This has been critical as we navigate this pandemic because as I'm sure everybody recalls in the beginning, there just weren't enough tests. And so labs were scrambling to develop their own tests to create more access to testing so we could have a better sense on the numbers of who's infected, where they're infected, um, and now currently it's, you know, what does reinfection look like? And that's, you know, the, the next step of the study. Um, both PCR and serology tests have been granted EUA by the FDA. And it's important to note that that EUA authority is actually only granted during the emergency period. Once it ends, the EUA authority terminates, right? So labs need to start preparing for the end of the EUA period and what that looks like. And at that point, they're going to have to make sure that their labs or their COVID tests meet the requirements for testing um, from both the FDA and under the CLIA regs. So um, I, I think that's an important thing to consider. A lot of the regulations from both the FDA, um, CMS, HIPAA have introduced some flexibility right now during this COVID period to enable um, access to testing, but also to further patient care. Those um, flexibilities, for lack of a better word, um, will need to be carefully monitored as the emergency period comes to an end because those flexibilities are only intended to apply during that emergency period. And once it lifts, do you, the providers are going to have to revert back to the original regulations that were in place if there isn't any type of amendment to the regs going forward. So it's something to keep an eye on as this um, progresses to what I hope is an end of the emergency period sometime soon. Additionally, CMS um, expedited the CLIA certification process during the emergency period. Um, so what they did was expedite the review of CLIA applications. As I said in the beginning, you must have a valid CLIA to perform COVID testing. So once a lab has chosen a lab director and has identified that person and all the required information that is needed to apply for a CLIA on the CMS-115, which is the form that labs use to apply for a CLIA certificate, then a CLIA number will be assigned. There's no requirements um, for testing that are going to be waived. So all of the other CLIA regs still apply. It's just an expedited process for issuing CLIA certificates so that labs can begin testing. 
Um, and then if you are looking for information on approved COVID testing mechanisms, our mechanisms, the FDA website is a great resource. It lists the, the wave tests that are approved by the FDA and some of the point of care testing options, such as the, the, the antigen test, but also some of the point of care, um, other versions of the test that you might see in a, a physician's office. Um, so definitely use that as a resource. The, both the FDA website, the CDC website, and also CMS's website actually are updated on a daily, sometimes it feels like hourly basis. So the information is always changing and it is recommended that you review that frequently so you know um, exactly where the agencies stand on the types of tests offering, um, who can do the testing, who can order the testing, um, and what enforcement of these rules and regs looks like right now. All right, so moving on to some of the operational and um, business considerations. <laughs> like I said, um, the FDA website and the CDC and CMS website talk about who may order COVID testing, and that's an important concept. Um, so under the CLIA standard, like I said, to perform a laboratory test, a CLIA certificate is required. The certificate itself must cover the complexity of the test being performed. Um, on March, I think it was March 26, 2020, CMS announced guidance regarding CLIA during the COVID emergency. And the guidance is only applicable during the emergency period. Um, accredited labs who have you know, certificates of accreditation or are accredited through COLA or CAP or um, perhaps the Joint Commission are still obligated to follow their accrediting body's requirements as well as all applicable state laws. Um, it's worth noting that just because a requirement is waived or some flexibility is given under a federal requirement, right, states and accrediting bodies still have the right to create more stringent requirements than, than the federal agencies. So just because there's flexibility under the CLIA regs in certain regards um, for obtaining the certificate, um, and we'll talk about a little bit more of the information that was in the guidance, um, states still might have stricter and more stringent rules. So um, it is worth noting that that guidance that was issued in March, other than what is specifically included in that guidance, all other CLIA requirements remain in place. So it's not an across the board enforcement discretion of CLIA regulations. It's just with regards to what's specifically noted in the guidance. <clears throat> A couple takeaways from that guidance include um, what well, we already talked about, the expedited review of the CLIA applications. Um, another one was a CMS has issued a policy of relaxed enforcement in connection with labs located at temporary testing sites. Um, so basically CMS has stated that it won't enforce the requirement to have a separate certificate for labs located at a temporary site so long as the primary site has a CLIA certificate and the work being done at the temporary site is within the parameters of the primary site certificate. Um, this is important 
when you talk about the start in office ancillary services exception, um, some of the waivers under the, the CLIA guidelines give some flexibility for under the in office ancillary services exception to the Stark law for where that testing can perform. So there are specific requirements under the Stark law for the location of the testing and where um, it is permitted. The most common way to satisfy that is to do the testing in the same building as the physician practice who's seeking to use the in-office ancillary services exception or same office I should say not just same building um, but you know this this guidance here basically states and along with the, the waiver that you can take that testing during the emergency period off-site um, which is great and you know gives flexibility to the pathologist to not have to go into an office um, and do its reading and subject itself to whatever you know virus or um, other diseases might be present at the time. So it's, it gives the pathologist some comfort. Things worth considering though is if it's like a hospital-based laboratory location um, and the send outs and reads are for outreach work and that work is being done under the hospital CLIA, that's something that the hospital could take issue with, right? Because now it's being done outside of the CLIA designated space. And so it's worth confirming with the hospital or whomever holds the CLIA certificate that this is a permissible use of their CLIA. So um, that and then um, payer contracts are, as well are worth considering um, when you are evaluating whether this type of arrangement is appropriate right now. Additionally, the guidance has stated that labs and continuous buildings on the same campus under common direction may hold a single certificate for all lab sites within the same location street, uh, same location or street address. So I typically think of this as like a, a hospital campus or a university campus that might have separate locations and those separate locations traditionally would require separate CLIA registrations. Well, right now during the emergency period, um, they can hold a single certificate for all lab sites at that location. And then finally, proficiency testing suspension is permitted if the lab notifies CMS and submits plans for resumption of proficiency testing um, once the emergency period has lifted. In order to suspend a proficiency testing program, you must get approval from CMS. So you, you do actually have to notify them in advance, provide the plans for resumption of the testing and get the approval from CMS before you can suspend that program. There are also state directives and orders surrounding who can order tests. So traditionally, um, a, uh, a diagnostic test has to be coupled with a physician order and certain states have expanded the type of authorized personnel who can order testing. And let me take that back a step. So actually CMS eliminated a requirement that testing be ordered by a physician, right? So they said during the COVID period, during this emergency period, the test itself does not have to be ordered by a physician, which is great news. It creates flexibility on who can do that. The problem is states have stricter guidelines, like I said earlier. So you still have to be cognizant of what the requirements are in your particular state. Many states, the good news is, have eliminated the requirement that it be um, ordered by a physician. And so um, 
you need to, you know, make sure that you check um, your specific state's guidelines. Some states enable or allow nurses, some states allow pharmacists. So each state is different. Um, and it's also changing constantly. So um, definitely confirm the requirements in the state in which you are practicing. And then there's this concept of employment-related testing, which we're gonna get into in a second here. But um, for employment-relating testing, although CMS has said a physician order is not required to order COVID testing, um, as we said, many states have stricter requirements. We'll get into this a little bit more in the next couple slides. But having the appropriate structure in place to perform return to work testing and determining the type of COVID test that is best for an employer is critical. Um, there are also reimbursement considerations relating to COVID testing. And I don't wanna spend too much time on this because Courtney is gonna talk about this in detail and she's our sort of reimbursement and payer expert at the firm. So, she certainly has a great deal more uh, expertise in this area than I do. But when you are performing COVID testing, um, you need to be aware of both the, the federal and state requirements for performing testing and billing for testing, as well as uh, payer policies. So many payers require the performing provider to bill. And even though there's the flexibility under CMS in some states, as far as who can order the testing, some payers might still require a physician or um, appropriate authorized clinician to order the test. So check your payer contract if you have any questions um, or reach out to your, your payer contract contact and they should be able to assist with some of those questions. And then moving on to um, testing in the workplace. So there's employer-directed testing, and then we will talk a little bit about healthcare employer testing. For employer-directed testing, really the question is, are we doing the PCR versus the serology test? Um, antibodies under the serology test format, um, antibodies typically develop within one to three weeks after the infection. There's unfortunately not enough information to say whether someone will definitively be immune and protected from reinfection if they have antibodies. Also, the test itself isn't that accurate, yields high numbers of false positives, which like I said earlier, can cause people to think they are immune. And the effect of that, right, is that those folks go out and continue to spread the virus and can get the virus themselves. Um, people who receive positive results on antibody tests but have no symptoms or have not been around someone who may have COVID are not likely to have a current infection and could presumably continue normal work schedules, but those folks must continue to take precautions to protect themselves and others until we find out what um, the utility is of a positive uh, antibody test result. Additionally, People who receive positive results on antibody tests um, and who are currently sick or recently have been sick or have been around someone with COVID should follow the CDC recommendations on caring for themselves and others and when they can be around other people again. So, you know, self-quarantining, taking measures to social distance, that sort of thing. Um, it's worth noting that the CDC guidance, and there's this is another great website to visit if you have any questions about testing or return to work and all um, 
things COVID, the CDC has a fabulous resource um, with very user-friendly guidance on um, these exact issues. And they've issued guidance on the utility of serology testing and has said that the antibody test should not be used to determine if someone can return to work for all of the reasons we've talked about here, right? It might be good as far as data um, gathering purposes, but the, the serology test shouldn't be used alone. It should be used in combination with the PCR test. As far as billing for employment tests, um, Courtney will touch a little bit more on billing, but unless the test itself is required by an executive order, which is the case in some um, states, depending on the type of industry that the employer um, participates in, but unless there is such an order, non-diagnostic testing, so you know, testing non-symptomatic employees, likely does not meet the medical necessity requirements and therefore should not be billed to a payer. Um, most return to work arrangements should be structured, structured as what we refer to as a client bill arrangement, where the lab bills the employer for the performance of the testing, and then the employer pays the lab. The employee itself or himself or herself should not be required to pay out of pocket for the testing that the employer requires. When performing this type of testing, there are a few um, sort of record keeping uh, procedures that you want to have in place. So there should be some sort of consent for the lab to disclose results to the employer. In a non-healthcare setting, the employer is not a covered entity, as the term is defined under HIPAA, but the lab is, right? So even though the lab is performing testing for a non-covered entity, an entity that's not subject to HIPAA, the lab is likely, in most regards, still subject to HIPAA. So the lab has to obtain patient consent to disclose the test results to the employer. Um, the consent should be drafted to meet the requirements of a valid authorization under HIPAA. And the employer should have the employee sign the consent form that authorizes the lab to release the test results to the employer. Because otherwise, without this consent form, there could be an argument that the, the lab disclosed the information to the employer without the, the employee's permission. And then as far as what the employer does with those test results, um, there should be a consent form that informs the employee of what, what are the permissible actions that can be taken with regards to a positive or negative test result. So the consent should also put the employee um, on notice and ask the employee to acknowledge and agree that the employer can take job-related action based on the results. So allow that individual to return to work or require that person to stay at home and what that stay-at-home situation would look like. Um, as far as the implications of a positive versus a, a negative test result, Again, um, we shouldn't be using the serology test to make job-related decisions, so we're really kind of talking about the, the PCR test. So if you have a positive result for um, the PCR test, that means that the person likely is currently infected um, with COVID-19. The employer should require that the employee stay home, contact their medical provider, and follow the advice for self-quarantining. They should be advised to follow CDC recommendations, and follow the recommendations for returning to work as well. A negative result, on the other hand, can allow an employer to have that employee come back to work, 
but should require the employee to continue to practice social distancing to the extent possible while at work, right? So um, if we can put barriers in between folks, um, I know that gets harder in like the manufacturing world, but to the extent we can have a six foot separation between employees, the safer your workplace should be. Um, they should be wearing um, face masks whenever possible and frequently encouraged to wash their hands. Also, it's worth noting a negative result in and of itself does not mean that the individual is necessarily COVID free. So advising your workforce of that is important as well. Even though you know we might test negative, we could still be carriers and need to monitor ourselves and that's why social distancing remains important. As far as frequency of testing goes, this is really up to the employer to determine um, based on the employer's objectives and the industry in which the employer operates. With respect to um, returning to work as well, employers should have procedures in place to um, work with the lab who's performing the testing to encourage social distancing during specimen collection. So the employees that show up, whether the collection is being done on site, or at a collection center, um, the collection time should be staggered to prevent people from gathering at the collection site, and employees should be um, instructed to wear face masks during the collection. Um, okay, moving on to healthcare employers. So a lot of the same concepts for health for standard employers, non-healthcare employers, apply to healthcare employers as well. And then there are stricter requirements on top of it, as you can imagine. So I alluded to this earlier, but there are um, certain states that have orders for certain types of healthcare facilities to perform testing of both personnel and patients to prevent the spread of COVID to other workforce members, as well as to the facility's patients. So typically this is seen in like the nursing home or long-term care facility. Um, but a lot of states have these directives. And um, again, this is something that's changing near daily. So it's critical to keep um, on top of what your state is doing if perhaps you operate one of these facilities. But really the goal of these directives is to protect both the workforce and the patients. Um, in order to protect patients, it's advised that um, the employee wear a face mask at all times while in the facility. That's not all that different than um, these healthcare practitioners that are wearing face masks frequently throughout the day, right, when they're visiting patients and doing um, evaluations of a patient. But now the recommendation is that they wear the mask at all times while in the facility to reduce the spread of the virus. Additionally, they are asked to self-monitor for symptoms. Um, this means, you know, taking temperatures before you arrive, um, evaluating your respiratory status. So are you coughing? Do you have shortness of breath? Um, are you fatigued? Um, anything that would be a pre-indication of a pending um, COVID infection. Um, if you have those symptoms or if an employee has those symptoms, that person should immediately start following the self-quarantining um, instructions or guidance until a COVID diagnosis can be confirmed or ruled out. Um, the CDC has issued really great criteria um, for return to work for healthcare providers specifically. Um, and they've broken it down into, um, you know, 
whether they're symptomatic versus asymptomatic. So a symptomatic healthcare provider or practitioner with suspected or confirmed COVID, there's two strategies for returning to work. One is the symptom-based strategy. The other is the test-based strategy. Under the symptom-based strategy, the employee should have at least three days that have passed since recovery. And recovery is defined as resolution of a fever without use of fever-reducing medication, so no Tylenol, aspirin, um, ibuprofen, or anything like that. And improvement in respiratory symptoms such as cough, shortness of breath, etc. And at least 10 days must have passed since symptoms first appeared. So if you meet those requirements, then that individual can return to work so long as it's consistent with the employer's um, policies and procedures as well. Under the test-based strategy, um, resolution of fever without use of fever-reducing medication is required, coupled with improvement in respiratory symptoms and negative results of a molecular test from at least two consecutive um, respiratory specimens collected 24 or more hours apart. So you have to undergo two separate PCR tests um, more than 24 hours apart, and both of those tests must result in a negative um, in order for you to return to work. A healthcare practitioner that has a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis but has no symptoms has uh, two strategies for returning to work based on the CDC guidance. Um, one is the time-based strategy and the other is the test-based strategy. Under the time-based strategy, 10 days must have passed since the date of the first positive COVID diagnostic test, assuming that individual has not subsequently developed symptoms since their positive test. If symptoms do develop, then the symptom-based or test-based strategy that we just discussed should be followed instead. Under the test-based strategy, negative results of a molecular PCR test from at least two consecutive respiratory specimens um, must occur in order for that individual to return to work. Um, when we're talking about serology versus diagnostic, the same concerns apply in the healthcare setting as in the non-healthcare setting when we're talking about employers. Um, just to rehash, they, there's just no confirmation of the utility of the serology test yet. Um, and then billing, again, Courtney will get into this a little bit more, but tests that are performed pursuant to a state order or other government mandate can potentially be billed. It just depends on the requirements of the order and the medical necessity of the testing being performed. So with that being said, I am going to turn it over to Courtney, who's going to talk about reimbursement and then the provider relief funds. Thank you so much, Emily. So as Emily said, I'm going to start off with a brief discussion of the COVID-19 testing um, reimbursement considerations. I'm going to go into some points of interest regarding the provider relief terms and conditions, and we'll finish the presentation with some enforcement considerations. Hopefully, um, I can get through this quickly enough that we can have some time for questions at the end. So um, on March 18th, in this year, the Families First Corona Response Act, or the FFCRA, was enacted. And within this, um, within this act, and you can see on the on the slide there, the FFCRA contained provisions that required payers to cover certain items and services related to the detection and diagnosis of COVID-19. And the 
that was further um, modified by saying that payers are required to do this without imposing cost-sharing obligations and without a requirement for prior authorization. And I believe the goal behind um, the refusal to allow cost-sharing obligations was to ensure that as many people who wanted to get tested could without having to lay out funds. Again, in that effort that Emily was discussing too, is to get as many people tested as quickly as possible. And that also was part of the reason why there was a waiver of that requirement for prior authorizations, that nobody had to wait for their payer to say, okay, yes, you qualify, um, you've met whatever conditions we've set to um, make sure that you can go ahead and have this test. About two weeks later on March 27th, um, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, was enacted, and it um, expanded the items and services that a payer can cover. And Emily mentioned this with regard to orders, but it's also true that there's nothing in either the FFCRA or the CARES Act that can prevent states from imposing their own standards or requirements, as long as those don't interfere with the federal requirements, meaning they can be um, stricter, um, if they need to be. So Emily, if you could go to the next slide. So Emily did a really great job explaining this in her portion of the presentation, so I don't want to belabor it, but I just want to make sure that, because it bears repeating, that Medicare doesn't require a practitioner to order certain tests for COVID-19, influenza, or RSV testing while physicians or other practitioners are making a diagnosis of COVID-19. However, as Emily stated, there may be other state requirements and those um, need to be followed. And commercial payers, payers that don't include the federal payers, you know, your United Healthcare, your Aetna's, Cigna's, those may have their, their own specific policies for what tests can be ordered without a practitioner um, and which, which methods they will authorize for those tests to be reimbursable. It's also really important for providers to remember that medical necessity is still required for reimbursement of these tests, meaning providers need to still document in their records the symptoms and conditions that lead to the test orders. Now, realistically, I don't think in most cases that medical necessity for COVID-19 testing is gonna be a really high bar. I think it's gonna be a fairly low bar, um, especially given some of the guidance and public comments that have been made. But that being said, and we're gonna to get to this in a little bit more detail at the end of the presentation, I really believe enforcement is gonna be aggressive. And so we would caution providers that best practices remain to document your medical records with as much detail as you would if it, as if this wasn't a public health emergency. And if we weren't trying to make sure that everybody who wants and needs to get tested can't test it, get tested. Most payers, and this is certainly true for federal payers, are evidence-based, meaning if you didn't document something happening or symptoms occurring, they didn't, they don't exist. So just make sure you're really detailed when you are documenting your records to the extent possible. Um, for most payers, um, the providers who are performing the services or the testing are the providers who can and should bill, and those are the providers that are going to be reimbursed. Again, um, you, each provider needs to pay attention to each of their payers' policies on test ordering, documentation, rates, and reimbursement guidelines. Um, some of the legislation has, that has been passed has set out sort of general guidelines for all payers, um, but you still need to be um, really aware and um, very cognizant of what those payers um, are expecting you. 
as Emily mentioned, also the payer policies are changing and evolving rapidly. Um, you probably want to, if you have the capacity on your staff, designate someone to be responsible for keeping track of certain payers or perhaps certain issues so that that person is responsible for checking the websites, checking the guidance. If you don't have that capacity or bandwidth, it's really important to maybe engage an attorney or a consultant to walk through the issues that are key to you so that you have somebody that is keeping track of the issues that are really crystally important for your practice. So before the webinar, I did a little bit of digging um, to get some of the commercial payer policies, and Emily did a great job setting this up. And I wanted to share just a few with you so you could have a sense of you know, what the payers are doing. And I will note that as I was going through, I only checked um, United, Cigna, and Aetna. As I was going through, all of these who had you, it's very easy to just type in United Healthcare COVID-19 and it brings you to sort of their platform page for all of the information. Um, most of these larger carriers are doing, you know, broad platforms, um, not so much specific to general areas, um, geographic areas uh, that you would normally find. But you will note that a lot of them have um, updates somewhere as recent as, you know, updated May 27th, May 28th. So as we've been saying all along, this is still continuing to rapidly evolve. Um, United Healthcare put a statement that they are accelerating payments to providers by a few days to a few weeks quicker than normal. And I guess a few days is better than nothing. Um, United Healthcare is also going to cover all FDA authorized COVID-19 antibody tests ordered by a physician or appropriately licensed healthcare professional without cost sharing. And again, just as a reminder, cost sharing is uh, a beneficiary's co-payment, co-insurance, or deductible. And again, this feeds into what Emily really set up for us, that your state may have requirements, but the payer itself may also have requirements. And in this case, United is saying that it has to be a physician or an appropriately licensed healthcare professional, and that will vary by state. Um, Cigna is reimbursing COVID-19 testing at 100% of Medicare, and it's also reimbursing specimen collection at 100% of Medicare. Um, Cigna stated that it was covering FDA-authorized PCR and antibody tests for the diagnosis of COVID-19 infection without cost share, and Aetna um, has sort of a blanket statement on their website that said it was complying with CMS coding guidelines for COVID-19 lab testing. And again, you should be able to just do that quick Google search if you don't have a portal already set up or a link saved on your computer for each payer website to find the relevant information. Um, for those of you who have had any sort of payer disputes or audits in the past, it's not usual for this information to be so readily available, so take advantage of it while you can, because um, you certainly want to make sure that you're complying with policies so that there's no issues on the back end. Um, if we could go to the next slide. Um, and I just alluded to this in my discussion of the commercial payer policies when I was talking about Cigna, um, but Medicare and certainly some of the commercial payers like um, Cigna are reimbursing for specimen collection. Um, if the collection is being done as part of a regular office visit, then it would just be included with the E&M code. But if specimen collection is done at an independent lab site um, or somewhere else, you know, an alternative test site facility, um, then this can be reimbursed by Medicare in some of these policies. And I believe when I looked at these rates, they ranged between $23 and $24, $25 per um, collection. So that's something important to note. Um, 
if you are doing this type of thing. Um, Emily did a really great job going um, through a discussion of the different types of tests, and I'm not going to rehash that. Um, this slide has a chart that has just some of the codes and um, the, the Medicare reimbursement rates for these codes. The U001 and the U002 are the um, CDC and non-CDC COVID-19 diagnostic tests, respectively. Those are the um, <clears throat> reimbursement rates for those. The 87635, which could also be the U003 or U004, are high throughput COVID-19 tests, and those are being reimbursed at $100 per test. Um, there's also, I believe, the 86328, which is um, next to last on this chart, is one of the serology tests, and that's the reimbursement rate for that one as well. Um, as a final note for this slide, um, the CARES Act also had a requirement that providers of COVID-19 diagnostic tests needed to make public the cash prices for COVID-19 diagnostic tests on the provider's website. So there's a transparency requirement for the costs that, that people will have to pay um, for these tests. This has also been important because at the beginning of this crisis, before prices had been set, um, if there hadn't been a negotiated rate with the payers, then the payers, through some of the other legislation, were required to use this, the cost that the payer, the providers had put forth. Um, it's important to note that this transparency, this price transparency, must be published for the duration of the public health emergency. So we'll go to the next slide. So now I want to turn to the provider relief terms and conditions. These have been a real moving target since they came out. Um, I included for you on this slide the link to the HHS website for provider relief information and the second link which, which did take you directly to the terms and conditions. But when I was going back this morning just to kind of follow up on a couple of things that I wanted to make sure I took note of in this presentation, I got back on the website like I do almost every day and it had changed just between last night and tonight. So unfortunately, I don't think that link will work anymore. Um, I didn't have a chance to try it out, but it is possible to find the terms and conditions on that initial. Um, you can probably just Google HHS Provider Relief Fund and that will um, bring you up. This. Um, this website has been one of the ones that I think changes more frequently than anything else I've seen. It not only changes as to content and updates, it also changes just as to how it's set up and formatted. Um, just this week alone, there were two major reorganizations of the information on the website, and one of them, again, just there were two of those just happened within the last 48 hours. Um, so it's really hard to um, make sure that you're accessing the most recent information. And it's, in my opinion, incredibly difficult to see what has been updated. Um, I presume that the reason they're making all these changes is to make the information easier to be to find. But if you found something one day and you're trying to go back and see um, if you remembered it correctly or if you want to document it, it can be really disconcerting to get back in that website and to see it completely different. Another thing that's pretty troubling when you talk about these provider relief terms and conditions is that they have changed since um, the original uh, distribution of funds, which I believe was April 10th. I stopped saving versions after four versions were done. 
I have noticed that the new versions no longer have dates at the top, so it's now even harder to tell when they have been updated. Um, these provider release terms and conditions are crucial because they are what providers are going to be attesting to um, and certifying to um, as a condition of receiving and using the funds. Originally, there was only a single term and condition document for the initial disbursement of the $30 million general distribution, and that initial disbursement was April 10th, I believe, and the first terms and conditions, I believe, were uploaded on the 13th of April. There are now eight different term and condition documents, and they're listed on the slide. I'm not going to read them to you, but they're all different um, sort of tranches of funds that have been distributed throughout this process, and they um, each have their own individual terms and conditions. They are all fairly similar, and most have the following common issues, which I'm going to go through. Um, I didn't do an actual comparison of the language for the common issues, but if not identical, for these common issues, the language is really sim sim similar. Excuse me. So the common themes for all of these are just the basic general certifications about participation in Medicare. For example, did the provider bill Medicare in 2019, certifying that you're not terminated or excluded. Providers are also certifying that the money will only be used to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus and will only reimburse expenses for healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues attributed to coronavirus. There's a prohibition against a windfall. You can't use the money you receive from other funds to pay for the same expenses. Um, you have to be willing to submit reports to establish compliance with the payment conditions. You're consenting to public disclosure of the receipt of payment, and that list, the lists are already there. You can already see who's received the money. Um, it's important to note that you'll, people may be able to figure out how much money you've made because how much money you've received is on there, and the calculations for that, how it was dispersed is on there, so keep that in mind. Um, any deliberate lies or omissions can be punishable by administrative, civil, or criminal penalties. That's revocation, exclusion, fines, damages, jail. If you receive more than $150,000 collectively from any of the types of coronavirus relief funds, then you are going to be required to submit quarterly reports. Um, there's also a certification that you will maintain appropriate records and um, cost documentation. And you're also certifying that you will only seek in-network rates from patients, even if they are out of network. Some of the terms and conditions have language requiring that the providers, and I'm going to quote this language, provide or provided after January 31st, 2020, diagnoses, testing, or care for individuals with possible or actual cases of COVID-19. What does this mean? And I think this is critical language, and this is language that gave um, all of us some real concern when it first came out um, because it, not everybody does treat patients with actual or um, possible cases of COVID-19. For example, um, you could be someone who works with cancer patients or some other thing that is not directly related to COVID-19. HHS, after much um, sort of argument and questioning um, and back and forth, did publicly take the position that all patients, all patients have possible cases of COVID-19. What is critically important in my view is that they chose not to include that position in any of the terms and conditions to date. So 
while they have taken that position, and at one point that language was readily available on the provider relief website for HHS, I, do, I was not able to find it quickly this morning, but while that language was readily available at one point, um, they chose, despite all the times they've uh, amended these terms and conditions, not to include that in, in the actual terms and conditions, and the terms and conditions are what the providers are certifying and attesting to. So we just caution providers to keep that in mind as you accept these terms and conditions and, and as you certify your compliance with them. And if you have any concerns or questions about how that would be applied in your particular instance, we would really encourage you to just um, talk to your attorney to do that risk analysis and figure out how it could be um, harmful or not harmful to you and whether it's worth retaining the money. So we'll go to the next slide. So next I'm going to move on to what I think is actually the most crucial language that appears in each of the terms and conditions. I gave it its own slide and I'm going to read it to you. Your commitment to full compliance with all terms and conditions is material to the Secretary's decision to disperse these funds to you. Non-compliance with any term or condition is grounds for the Secretary to recoup some or all of the payment made for the from the relief fund. As someone whose practice is really focused on payer relations, auditing, appeals, recoupment, investigations, this language struck me when it was added. Yep, I said that. It was added after the first version of the terms and conditions. Um, I think it was added about 10 days after the first one, but I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, this language is critical because it sets up false claims liability for a provider's failure to comply with any term and condition. You'll see that on the slide there, um, the term material is highlighted, and that term is um, something that's often debated in the courts as to whether um, something should be reimbursed or not, or whether there is false claims liability. And the second sentence um, is also highlighted because, again, these are the really critical parts of this language and part of the certification. This language, which sets up the false claims liability, puts every provider on notice that if you don't comply with any of this, we can come after you. And oh, by the way, don't forget, False Claims Act liability is treble damages. So we'll go to the next slide. Um, I want to make sure that we have time for questions. Um, that language and the terms and conditions, I think, really leads us nicely into our last slide and the discussion of enforcement considerations. I think I mentioned this earlier that it's my personal belief that when this crisis is over and things start to settle down, the government's going to be extremely aggressive in reviewing how all these billions of dollars were spent. And with regard to any fraud surrounding COVID-19 relief funds, um, if you're paying attention, you will see that there are already enforcement actions being brought against individuals and entities that are attempting to commit fraud surrounding COVID-19 testing, um, et cetera. The government relief funds, as I said, are staggeringly high, and I think the government's going to want to get as much back of it as possible, and they are going to really dig in to see and to double-check that providers are doing the right things. So as we discussed, there's that language in the terms and conditions themselves, which every provider who receives those funds or accepts those funds has to acknowledge and certify to. There have also been public comments by Secretary Azar and others regarding enforcement. And then really tellingly, 
just a few days ago, the OIG published a strategic plan entitled Oversight of COVID-19 Response and Recovery. This plan has four goals, protect people, protect funds, protect infrastructure, and promote effectiveness. It's not a long document. It's maybe four or five pages. Um, there were two things that really struck me. One was that the second goal, right after protecting people, is the goal to protect the money. That's before the goal of protecting infrastructure or promoting effectiveness. The second thing that really struck me is once I got into the document and, and reviewed the language that was in there, it's just riddled. Every single goal is essentially focused on fighting frauds and scams, investigations. It talks about conducting audits and investigations. It talks about identifying and investigating fraud, deploying law enforcement. The strategic plan lays out that the OIG is going to be using risk assessment and data analytics, and this is to identify, monitor, and target potential fraud, waste, and abuse affecting HHS programs. So the thing is, the government's really good at data analytics, and it's been using it for years. I would say the majority of the audit cases that I've been involved in have probably been a result of data analytics. They have hundreds of data points they can use to create this data analysis um, to target providers. The OIG also stated that it's going to be using artificial intelligence to detect trends and patterns of suspicious activity. Um, they're also going to use this to help them shape and strengthen oversight and enforcement. So while these data analytics and these patterns and trends may not ultimately bear out to be fraud, if you are one of the unlucky providers who gets chosen to be subject to these types of reviews, it's really time-consuming um, and expensive to defend. Um, and it, it takes a lot of resources, not just money, but people resources. Um, within your, your entity. So just keep that in mind. The, the other language that I quoted on this um, piece is that um, an HHS, it's from one of the facts that appeared on the HHS website, that HHS is going to have significant anti-fraud monitoring of the funds. And again, this is just another signal to providers and the general public that um, the government is taking the distribution of these funds very seriously. There's a real significant commitment. Um, it's patently obvious to me that providers will need to do everything in their power now to document and support their need for these funds and how they use them um, and to document um, the claims for reimbursement for any sort of COVID-related services. And so I think as just one quick tip before I wrap up, um, we just want to make sure that you treat all of these claims, even though everything is so time sensitive, as um, as to be as documented as well as you would anything else. Um, so again, I want to thank everybody for um, for your time today. Thank you again, uh, First Healthcare, for having us. And um, hopefully, I left a little time for questions, and I will turn it back over to Catherine. Okay, thank you so much. Um, very much appreciated your uh, presentation here. We do have a few questions. So the first question is, what is the difference between diagnostic and antibody testing? This is Emily. I can take that one. So the diagnostic tests are your PCR or your antigen tests that are used to diagnose a current infection of COVID. 
the serology test or the antibody test is what's used to test an individual to see if they once had the COVID virus and now have antibodies um, to determine perhaps that person might have some sort of immunity to the disease, um, but again, or to the virus. But again, the utility of the, the antibody results are, is just not um, clear yet. There's still a lot of um, evaluation and improvement that needs to be done there. And the the antibody one was the is the blood test. Is that correct? The antibody is the blood test. Yep. Yep. Okay. And how reliable is antibody testing? Again. So the the blood test the antibody is not I shouldn't say it's not reliable. The utility of the results is what we don't know, right? So if you have the antibodies, you presumably had the infection at some point. Your body has developed an immune response to it and created antibodies, which, um, in the case of other viruses, protect against reinfection. This virus is still so no new that we don't know whether or not those antibodies will actually protect against reinfection such that you're immune to COVID going forward, right? Um, so mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of the next step of figuring out what to do with a positive or negative serology test or antibody test diagnosis. Okay. Uh, what documentation should an employer have with labs and employees to commence return to work COVID testing? Um, this is Emily, I can take that one again. <laughs> So a lab services agreement between the lab and the employer should be um, executed that spells out both the lab's responsibilities as well as the employer's responsibilities. Um, if the lab is doing the collection versus a separate collection facility, you know, all of that needs to be spelled out who's going to determine the frequency of the schedule, who's going to be selecting the individuals to be tested, um, whether it's gonna be all of the workforce, whether it's gonna be a random um, selection of the workforce. Um, so all of those things should be hashed out in the, the lab services agreement. If you are a lab and the employer is asking for serology testing, I'm always recommending that the lab put language in there that the serology test or antibody test should not be relied upon by the employer in making employment-related decisions because that's the CDC's current position. Again, that could change because this stuff changes hourly, minute by minute. <laughs> um, so keep an eye on that. Um, but yeah, so the, the lab services agreement and then the consent, um, this can either be done by the lab, between the lab and the employee, for the lab to be authorized to release the results to the employer. And then there should be some sort of consent between the employer and the employee that states what action the employer can actually take with respect to the lab results it gets from the lab who performed the test. So is that person gonna be allowed to work? Is that person gonna be ordered to stay home? What that looks like. Okay. And I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure if this question is, um... This question is, how often should return to work testing be performed? I'm not sure if this means um, return to work testing or testing in general, like um, if because you could have false uh, negatives. So I'm not sure if that means once the person has already returned to work. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. So I think it is, um, well, there's two. So if the person, if an employee has a positive diagnosis, um, and they're a healthcare individual, 
the CDC guidance for return to work should be followed. So they should have two consecutive um, negative PCR tests that were done more than 24 hours apart. Um, if it's a regular employer, they're probably not doing that type of specificity um, because you know they might not be able to get that much access to testing. I mean, I guess that depends on their relationship with the lab. Right. Um, but as far as testing employees to return to work, like just flat out return to work as things get back up and running, um, and ongoing testing after, that's gonna be scheduled by the employer. Some industries like healthcare um, have specific requirements of when and how they're supposed to test their workforce. Um, Non-healthcare, it's really left up to the discretion of the employer based on what works for the industry that they're in as well as their current workforce. It's so funny, uh, you know, even though we're we're doing these webinars uh, for in um, healthcare, often since I'm talking to you all as presenters from law firms, for some reason, I'm always visualizing um, as the workforce, um, the law firm. So I'm thinking always often of the workforce being in um, a law firm office setting, often instead mm -hmm. of the setting being um, in a healthcare setting. Um, and of course we have, uh, uh, you know, people who attend who are um, in both both settings. So um, so it's interesting when right. I think of um, different types of settings and people returning to work um, in, right. in all, all different um, types of uh, offices. So so it's interesting. Do you all yeah. have any, um, any other further words of advice for us? Um, I mean, I think Courtney said this multiple times, and I said this, and I'll let Courtney chime in too, but because this is evolving on a day-by-day -day basis, I can't stress enough the importance of just continuing to stay on top of this um, as things change. Courtney suggested dedicating a individual, if you have the, the staff to do this, to monitor um, compliance with all the COVID requirements. Um, I don't understand that a lot of folks don't have that resource, but to the extent somebody could own this responsibility and stay on top of it because it evolves. I mean, like Courtney said, the terms and conditions alone for the provider relief form have, or provider relief program have changed so many times that it's hard to stay on top of it. So um, yeah, that, that is my word of advice. I will pause since I know I did a lot of talking there and I will let Courtney chime in. Yeah, I would say, you know, I echo what Emily said, but I also think it's just really important that um, I think more so than ever, Providers need to be doing their best practices for everything right now, especially the COVID-related. Um, the government is extraordinarily successful at getting health funds back in just a regular year on fraud and abuse um, without all this COVID expenditure. And they really, I think the, la the last figure I saw was they collect in fines and penalties something like $7 to every $1 that was actually reimbursed or spent. Um, so they're really successful at it. And this is a huge, huge, huge expenditure by the government. And they have already put out all the um, information that we need for us to know that they are going to be looking at this. And so we just really stress and recommend that you do everything you can to be compliant and to document, document, document everything so that you are not trying to recreate all your compliant activities if somebody comes knocking, but if somebody comes knocking, you can just turn it over and say, look, we did this, here's all our reports, how can we help you? Okay, now you can move on to someone else. Um, I really think that's really critical and falls in line with having someone that you can trust who will keep on top of this. Um, so 
it's a difficult thing. We recognize that everybody is really worn thin right now, um, but I personally believe it will help in the long term significantly. Okay, great. Well, um, thank you so much for being on here. Um, and uh, attendees, uh, don't forget that you can download the slides here so you can have all the information and uh, don't forget to use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Uh, please send us any further questions and we'll forward them on as well to Emily and Courtney. And uh, please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And Emily and Courtney, I wanna thank you again uh, so much for being here. Um, really appreciate that, thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Yes, and stay safe. And thank you all again for joining us.